supposed to wake up is with the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Listeners support the Peter B. Collins Show, and I'm grateful. Today I want to single out David Lichtenstein, a new subscriber to the Peter B. Collins Show. PayPal doesn't tell me where you are, David, but I'm grateful for your support. And also, our newest contributor is from France. We'll single her out for mention next time here on the Peter B. Collins Show. Coming up later in this podcast, Kate Hanai will join us from FlyersRights.org. They won a big victory. Airlines can no longer trap you on the tarmac for longer than three hours. We'll see if that rule gets enforced. This ain't no technological breakdown. And joining me today for the first segment of our podcast is David Swanson, a longtime activist. He worked on the Kucinich campaign back in 2004. That's where I first encountered him. And then we camped out together on the mall in Washington at Camp Democracy. He has been tireless with Democrats.com, after DowningStreet.org, uh, the uh, ImpeachmentPack.org. And he is not done yet. He has a new book out called Daybreak, Undoing the Imperial Presidency and Forming a More Perfect Union. And he joins us here at our secret studio in California today. Hi, David. Wonderful to be here. Hi, Peter. Well, it's good to have you in person. We've talked many times uh, over the phone and uh, only seen each other face-to-face from time to time. And I want to begin just by saying thanks, because you have been speaking for me and other like-minded Americans on so many issues, on so many occasions, from the corporate meltdown that led to the huge bailouts to our policies on war and national security, domestic policies, including health care and our, our privacy and constitutional rights. And I don't know where you get all the energy, but uh, I'm very grateful for it. Well, I would just be speaking to myself or, and a couple of friends if it were not for getting on shows like the Peter B. Collins show. And I, I remember you giving the best coverage uh, that anyone did at, at Camp Democracy and being there with us. Um, and I was uh, I was in Oregon last week on my book tour, and uh, Leah Bolger, who's, I think, the vice president now of Veterans for Peace, had organized a big crowd, and then they're organizing book club discussion groups to read the book together after my event and so forth. And she said, you know, I really became an activist uh, at Camp Democracy. And, you know, it's things like that that you run into around the country um, indicate that something that didn't actually overthrow the government or end the war immediately uh, helped to build things that are moving in the right direction. Well, and one of the people who I met at Camp Democracy was Colonel Ann Wright. 
and she continues her tireless efforts. I talked to her two weeks ago from Cairo, where she was there uh, organizing Americans and others from all over the world. 1,400 people converged, uh, attempting to get into Gaza for a, uh, a freedom march. And they were mostly, uh, I, I guess, except for 100, were denied entry by the Egyptians. Uh, but she's somebody who also works on so many fronts, uh, including uh, the despicable record of sexual assault against women serving in our military, including in, in combat zones right now. And so I, I, you know, I, too, got a lot out of Camp Democracy, the connections that were made there and the people and ideas that uh, you exposed us to. Anne Wright is a model to all of us. Um, you know, she she was in a position to be to be a whistleblower, to be someone who resigns a position uh, in the government because of a war that she doesn't want to be associated with. Uh, and not everyone is in the position to do that. But she's gone on to to write a book about other whistleblowers, to lead the peace movement, to to run Camp Casey in Crawford, Texas, uh, and to tirelessly travel around the country without end for years and around the world without stop with hardly sleep and and rest uh and you know i i thought oh well if ann wright can do this for five years without stopping i can at least do a book tour mm -hmm. but you know I'm, I'm gonna leave it to her i you know this is uh this is not something i can do forever she's she's a model uh for the rest of us now, David, until I read your book, um, I have to confess that I only knew from the Kucinich campaign forward, and I didn't know about your work with ACORN. Uh, in the last few months, I had the chance to talk to Wade Rathke, and uh, I've been one of those people defending ACORN. It is just obscene what uh, has occurred and the way Democrats were so quick to jump on a Republican bandwagon to demonize ACORN around purely phony concocted charges of voter fraud. And this was used as a huge ACORN smokescreen, effectively by Karl Rove and others, to cover the massive election fraud that was engineered and executed by Republicans, not only at the presidential level that so many people are aware of, but in critical elections uh, up and down the food chain around this country. And uh, it... it <laughs> It's just amazing to me that the Congress would vote to cut off funds in this kind of emotional backlash because of some staged videotape encounters with a few lower-level ACORN workers. And I want to give you an opportunity here just to take a minute to talk about your experience with ACORN, the work that was accomplished, and if you think that after this, uh, this flap that occurred, that ACORN can get back to some of the great work that it's been known for. Uh, I think it will, undoubtedly, um, but it needs our support, and it, it's distressing uh, the extent to which our independent media system failed to inform people around the country who would be interested and supported uh, and supportive of ACORN for years was succeeding. Uh, and that was the reason for the attacks. Uh, yeah, you, you registered millions of voters who primarily voted Democratic. Well, ACORN went out and registered people in low-income neighborhoods and minority neighborhoods, the neighborhoods where people organized chapters of ACORN, uh, organized as members, paid dues, elected their leaders, and worked on local 
campaigns and state and national campaigns, people went out and registered voters. And you're required, of course, to register everyone. You can't ask who are you going to vote for, what party do you like, uh, and then throw some of them out. You're required to keep every single form. Uh, including, including the ones that say Mickey Mouse. Right, including the ones that say Mickey Mouse. You have to turn them in and flag them and say, hey, we don't think this one is valid. Uh, now, needless to say, Mickey Mouse doesn't actually show up and vote. So there's not actually any impact whatsoever on an election. Uh, the problem is that a form was turned in with Mickey Mouse's name on there. But in each and every instance that I'm aware of, uh, it was Acorn itself when turning the forms in, that flagged them as suspect. Uh, I don't know of any cases uh, where someone else discovered such a form. Uh, and so to come I actually back... voted twice, once as Goofy. Oh, you did? All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cops will be coming through the door. I'll bet, the, yeah. The... the, the, the uh, uh, but but repeatedly, people did come back years later and say, oh, you know, Acorn registered Mickey Mouse. It's a threat to our elections. Um, a, as you point out, uh, masking the real problem of election fraud and unverifiable elections and machines and so forth. Um, but it was attack, an attack because Acorn was doing such a good job. So you can imagine the resistance there is to a real solution that other countries in the world have, and that is to simply automatically register everybody when they're 18 and drop this whole charade of having to register people uh, to vote. The resistance to that, the anti-democratic with a small d forces are tremendous. But but that's one small area in which an affiliate of ACORN was having great success. ACORN was winning victories at the local and state levels uh, on wages, on loans, on fighting out predatory loan sharks. If ACORN's advice to Wall Street had been heeded, uh, Wall Street could have avoided uh, causing us a lot of damage. I'm sure Wall Street made out just fine for itself. But uh, instead, there, there's a campaign to blame groups like Acorn for these uh, these loans that we've spent so many years fighting and fighting creatively and successfully. I, I mean, we won a half billion dollars, the biggest settlement short of the the cigarette company settlements for victims of loans from one company from household finance, which then had to sell out to another company. It's not around anymore, and we did that by getting people to divest passing local and state laws and using households crimes as the examples, using them as the examples in congressional hearings, mm -hmm. uh, using loan counselors to get people out of their loans and keep people away from their loans and get them into safe loans, uh, and by holding days of actions where we put people in and sat in and shut down their offices around the country, and by taking busloads of their victims, people who'd lost their houses, to the homes in the wealthy suburbs north of Chicago of, of their CEO and board members mm -hmm. uh, and posting wanted posters for them around their neighborhood. Uh, it, it was that kind of action in particular that brought them to the table. Uh, and Acorn did this with and does this with Republican and Democratic elected officials alike. Uh, and you build a much better relationship with people by by pressuring them than by kissing up to them. So when I leave a group like Acorn and I see other groups intent on kissing up and not offending their, their public servants, uh, it, it disturbs me. Yeah. David, your book is powerful, and I want to recommend it to my listeners because a steady theme on this program and on the Boiling Frog series that I'm doing with Sibel Edmonds is the expansion of presidential power. 
which occurred under Bush and Cheney, with David Addington, uh, the legal mind driving that bus on so many occasions. And uh, the book is not just a series of complaints. You do outline, I think, in a detailed way what's wrong with our system, how acquiescence by the Congress, the failure of the legislative branch to assert its responsibilities and authorities under the Constitution. And you also offer some inspiration, some ideas on how we can address these issues, how to fix them. One of my disappointments is that this book is still needed. In fact, it's more important than ever. Because just a year ago, um, I was one of those people who I thought had appropriately limited my expectations. But among those limited expectations what was that President Obama was going to return us to constitutional rule and that we were going to see an end to the expansive, I don't call it warrantless, I call it unconstitutional surveillance of the American people, some of which was exposed on Folsom Street right here in San Francisco. Um, I thought that we were going to see um, a president who would repudiate the use of signing statements, a president who would roll back um, the, uh, the authority that was seized first by Clinton and then abused further by Bush to kidnap people and call it rendition when we ship them to places where we know they will be tortured and uh, pretend that we don't believe that that's going to occur. Now, those are just some of the examples. You go into more detail in the book, but um, it's not really surprising that Obama would become president and say, I'm not going to limit my powers. But it is surprising to me that the Congress, once again, has failed to assert itself and say, that was an aberration, Bush-Cheney. We want to return to a normal relationship between the three branches of government, and yet we don't see that happening even in a minimal way. And we aren't pushing hard enough for it. Um, and, you know, for one thing, we recognize that putting power back in Congress would not in and of itself do us any good. We'd have to get Congress to represent us. So there are two steps needed. Um, but also we've gone through this uh, stupid, stupid cycle of expectation and disappointment because of an election. You know, and, and it's, it's as if we were digging irrigation ditches to water our garden and somebody said, well, let's have a rain dance, a, war a wonderful marvel this rain dance that will just take care of things for the next four years. Uh, and then we did that, and maybe it sprinkled a little bit, and we deluded ourselves it had worked. Uh, and then, of course, we're disappointed that it didn't. And so instead of going back to digging the ditches and fixing the garden with, with real means, uh, we, we, we get disappointed and we, we get tired and we say, oh, well, we've been working so hard. But, but and isn't you say, there just a better rain dance? And, well, this is, <laughs> well, no, people, people will sort of say, well, I don't, I don't actually believe rain dances work. And I'll say, well, then why weren't you disappointed last year or the year before or the year before? Why did everybody reach the breaking point this year? If it's not because they believe in the damn rain dance, you know, and and so we have to break out of that, uh, which means turning away from our obsession with presidents and our our delusions about lobbying presidents or expecting them to not only fulfill their promises, but to secretly be plotting to do better than their campaign promises. I mean, who has ever heard of such a thing? And yet tens of millions of Americans expected that uh, and focusing on on local and state organizing and activism and and education and pressuring members of the House of Representatives, not the Senate and not the president, putting our our strength where it might 
have some impact. And that includes telling Congress members, we want you to have more power. We want you to take power back and use it. Uh, whether you want it or not, we demand uh, that you take it. And that's going to uh, require some, some pressure on our part. And one of the most critical powers, uh, let me mention two, entrusted to Congress, are the authority to declare war and the power of the so-called purse. Indeed. And we have seen the Congress roll over on this, uh, despite efforts by members of both parties to uh, reinstate uh, a War Powers Act that's consistent with the Constitution and then actually observe it when a president says, hey, uh, we got to go to war. Right. Uh, and the other issue is so cut and dried that the House of Representatives is charged with originating spending bills, appropriations, and it has the choice to not originate such a bill. And so when we talk about the forthcoming effort to fund Obama's uh, misguided uh, escalation of U.S. presence in Afghanistan, uh, the Congress, the House, Nancy Pelosi, David Obie, they have the explicit power to just say, no, we're not going to originate the bill, and therefore there's nothing for the Senate to do, there's nothing the president can do. Yet, uh, in the face of... Uh, of a threat of being called soft on foreign policy or uh, having a wavering commitment to our troops, uh, the Democrats will very predictably cave on these. Well, you can make that prediction and nobody would call you crazy, but uh, it is our responsibility not to make predictions, but to engage in activism and, and force the desired outcome. Uh, and there are angles of, of weakness. Uh, and Congressman Obi began uh, making noises about standing up for himself uh, last fall. Uh, and we've been given a golden opportunity. Um, we, we have the president not just asking for, yet again, the world's biggest military budget in the history uh, of the planet, um, not counting the Energy Department and the State Department and the CIA, you know, the, the, the secret budgets for wars. Black, I mean, yeah. we're, 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 we're over a trillion dollars here, but we're talking about 700-some billion dollars. Uh, and then he wants $33 billion in a supplemental for the wars. Uh, now, this is the second time we're having a supplemental when we weren't to have any more supplementals anymore, um, which is not to say that we should accept the world's biggest military budget as it is and focus only on the supplemental, but it is a golden opportunity. We had progressive members of Congress like Jan Schakowsky last year saying, well, I'm going to vote for this supplemental because the president wants me to and because it's the last one. You, you had dozens of them saying, I'm going to vote for this because it's the last one, as if, you know, I'm going to kill one more child because it's the last child I'm going to kill. What, you know, what sense did that make? I don't know. But it can't be the last one again and again and again. Uh, and it, it, there is there is incredible public resistance to this. Now, they are going to claim that they already funded the escalation last month when they voted for the on the final vote for the last pile of money. Uh, they knew damn well that it would be used for the escalation. The escalation is happening. So they're going to say it's too late. It's already happened, so we have to pay for it. We have to fight that, uh, and we can. And they're going to claim that they must vote for the other nice, pretty nonsense that they package into that supplemental bill. They're going to put something in there for kids or animals. Jobs. Maybe jobs they put they put unemployment insurance in the last one, despite the fact that war money increases unemployment because there's nothing else you could do with that money that wouldn't produce more jobs 
than putting it into war. Um, they will put anything in there, but our Congress members have to know that we're on to them, that we know that that stuff can be passed separately, and that it will be passed separately if they vote the money down. So we have a chart at defundwar.org of where every Congress member stands on voting for or against the war money. We have to get their promises, get them on video, and hold them to it. Uh, and I think we can do it. We can do it easily. If the Republicans vote no for some cockamamie reason, as they did last summer, uh, then we only need 40 Democrats, and we can get them easily. If we have to get 218, uh, dozens of them will be Republicans, but we'll have a fight on our hands to get to 218. But it is far and away our best shot. Now, That's what do you make of Speaker Pelosi on this particular bill, the, the uh, additional money for Afghanistan, telling the White House that the president will have to get his own votes? Uh, is that a meaningful threat on her part? No. Uh, she should tell the president, we won't pass this bill. Uh, the president always gets his own votes. Rahm Emanuel always gets his own votes. Last summer, the White House and various cabinet secretaries and generals in the, in the United States Army spent a week or more doing nothing but bribing and badgering and threatening Congress members until they voted for that war money. Um, I, I don't know that Nancy Pelosi was the biggest player in, in the room on that occasion. Uh, and her stepping aside or pretending to uh, isn't going to save us. But to the extent that she takes her foot off the neck of a handful of, of members, uh, that's helpful. Uh, we should make sure that she does. It's, it's not enough that she works to guarantee that these things pass and then personally votes against them. Uh, and if the people of San Francisco fall for that charade, uh, they need an education. <laughs> I, I, I doubt very much they're falling for that. So, uh, David, as, as we look at this current situation, uh, beyond the issues of the wars, which are very important, and these represent uh, an ongoing drain to our resources, a risk to our position in the world. Uh, we're producing more threats, not snuffing them out, as we are told in the, the rhetoric. Uh, how do we get control back? You are a guy who I find fascinating because you get involved in the struggles du jour, but you also have a long view. You, you're a critical thinker who looks beyond the current skirmish. And so can you sketch out a path forward for progressives to have their voices heard and actually impact policy on the most critical array of issues that, that we are, are confronting? Well, I mean, ultimately, we need to amend our Constitution. Uh, short of that, we, we need uh, legislative changes. We, we, there are all sorts of, of goals and, and a vision for a different society in the future that I lay out in the book. Uh, to get there, uh, we need different strategies to push reforms step by step. Uh, you know, the, the, the reforms that are most badly needed to get our voices through are number one in communications, in media. We need, we need to support media outlets like this one uh, and stop supporting the ones that are destroying our country. And we need reform. We need major investment privately, independently, and public money in independent media. Um, and we need free media for campaigns, and we need clean campaigns. And if we can't get them right away uh, nationally, we need to keep getting them in states and, and cities, uh, as is happening. Um, we, we need to push all of those reforms forward. But in the meantime, we can't sit back and wait on issues like the environment and the war and health care and anything else. We have to be 
fighting at least to block bills that make things worse, if not to pass ones that make them better. Uh, and to block things, we only need the House. We don't need the Senate or the President. And to reinstate the power of the Congress and hold people accountable and engage in oversight, we only need the House or a, or a committee of the House. We don't need the Senate or the President. So we can put our pressure there, focused uh, and targeted, and drop the idea uh, uh, that politeness is one of our highest values at the moment, uh, that that these people are on our side or some of them are not on our side. Uh, we have to break from this, this astroturfing that so many activist groups do on the left as well as the right in their own way, going and asking the White House or Congress, what should we demand of you? Uh, which, which turns us into props rather than asking us what should we demand of Congress and taking that forward, willing to compromise but not willing to, to self-censor uh, and preemptively compromise. So we have to drop or reform organizations that are that are using us as props and build or join organizations that are that are democratic with a small d that are coming from outside the beltway so do we need to bust the dominance of the two parties absolutely we do it's it's insane that the, the things you have to do to get on the ballot as a candidate to get in a debate to get on the media to get any money uh it's it's crazy which is which is not to say that we need to to exclusively build a third party or a fourth or fifth or that ideally we would have six parties um uh, but these reforms would open things up for independent candidates, the same as they would for candidates from a third or fourth party. Um, but these reforms all go hand in hand, and most of the corruption of the parties, it seems to me, comes through the money. You, you know, the party is the big channeler of money to its to its members, uh, and it's very, very hard for a Congress member to go against the demands of his or her party's leadership, uh, not just in order to get bills and earmarks and military factories uh, and and chairmanships of committees, but mm -hmm. to get money, advertising and campaign money from the party and, and not have the party fund a challenger in the next primary. Uh, and that was the threat last summer from the, from the heads of the Democratic Party to these freshman Democratic Congress members. You vote for this war money, or in some cases you vote for this IMF money that was packaged with the war money. They were happy to vote for the war money, but not the IMF money. Uh, or you will be dead to us. Those were the words. This, this is mafia talk. You will be dead to us. Uh, we will back a challenger, and you will not get a dime. And so what do you counsel as the starting point? <clears throat> Where should my listeners get engaged to try to address the need for change and push things in that direction? Well, go to defundwar.org on that, on that issue uh, and get engaged there. Uh, work with the groups locally. There may be groups even that I work with that have a party's name in them, like Progressive Democrats of America and Democrats.com, that are, that are doing a better job than most. Uh, there are a lot of peace and justice and environmental groups uh, that people know better than I do who's doing the best job in their town and county and state uh, that people should get involved with and if necessary reform from the inside um but get away from the idea of focusing on elections get away from the idea of supporting a, a party and uh, and that your concern should be uh whether escalating a war benefits or harms a party as opposed to whether it kills people uh and focus on the issues and hold congress members accountable 
uh, punish them when they do badly and reward them when they do right, because every single one of them needs to be both punished and rewarded. They're not all good or bad, any of them. Uh, and Are they puppies? <laughs> uh, uh, you, they, you met my dog, Rocky, and as you talk about that, you know, I reward him when he's a good boy and I scold him when he's a bad boy. They, they're, they're, some, they're somewhat souped-up puppies, you know. They're, <laughs> they're not in need of, of intellectual persuasion. They're not in need of think tank events in Washington, D.C. Uh, there's not a, an intellectual case for the wars. So, you know, making the, making the respectful case against the wars is not going to end them. Uh, what's going to end them is the public pressure, the the public uh, visible demand and the intense interference with their daily working lives sitting in their offices. Um, you know, I've gone to I've gone to places where people tell me, oh, well, we can't we can't persuade our Congress member, you know, that Della Hunt, we've taken to calling him Della won't, you know, and then and then they send me an email saying, you know what, we we did go sit in at his office and next week he's meeting with us, you know, and and when people when people take a stand with their congress members uh respectfully but forcefully uh it, it builds a better relationship with better outcomes than just kissing up and not asking for anything david as you know i co-host an interview series called the boiling frogs with sabelle edmonds who is a hero of mine she blew the whistle on the wrongdoing she saw at the fbi got fired for it got gagged uh, under the state secret privilege and she's a courageous person now who is speaking out, and her website, uh, Boiling Frogs Post, it, it features a lot of independent, first-run journalism and some excellent commentary from her. She was not able to schedule uh, to join us today, but uh, she did have a question that I recorded that uh, we'd like to get your response to. Does that you consider your greatest obstacle to be public apathy? And here's a quote from you, David. If enough people get involved, we won't have a single soldier in Iraq. It's a realistic vision and requires acts that are easy. It just depends whether we do them. Now, thanks to the Internet, we've gotten many people to think and talk about it in active forums, but how do we change all this talk into tangible action? How do we translate all this into action? Well, some people need encouragement so they have to be shown the victories and the paths to small victories along the way uh it helps to show people the successes we're having in counter recruitment you know these wars are being fought to exactly the extent that we have the troops and mercenaries to fight them uh and people are winning victories are getting the military tests out of schools are getting the recruiters out of schools are getting the military theme parks out of shopping malls and so forth uh those victories have to be celebrated and bragged about and and people shown how to do it uh in other parts of the country uh there are people here not far from here in northern california taking interesting approaches of, of passing measures on the ballot uh, to get the military out of schools. But uh, in terms of, of going after Congress, uh, we, we have to do it uh, as, as an organized effort of nonviolent uh, pressure, not, not intellectual persuasion and not purely elections. You know, election challenges are one tool. Going after people's funders is one tool. Going after them in the media is another tool. But disrupting their daily business in their local offices and in their offices in D.C., for that matter, and at their homes uh, has to be 
a part of it. We have to make it harder for them to keep doing what they're doing uh, than to listen to us. Uh, and we certainly can. Uh, and this is the time to do it. We've been making progress. We have a better opportunity now. We have a chance for people to come to a real realization about putting issues ahead of party in that we've given the better of the two parties complete control and they're choosing to do nothing with it. Uh, I think this is a golden opportunity uh, that's that's to some extent being overshadowed by uh, the stupid, moronic expectations uh, of the past year of success coming from a completely uh, unlikely place. Well, David, uh, one aspect of the apathy that Sabelle referred to troubles me, and that is about the wars. And number one, Obama went in, came into office and has since skated on his promise not to remove all troops from Iraq. He never promised that, but combat troops, he said. And uh, they're supposed to start coming home now. Uh, but I haven't seen any real indication that American soldiers are packing up uh, in Iraq and getting ready to come back stateside. And likewise, uh, prior to the December 1st speech at West Point, uh, a majority of Americans were showing up in the polls as opposed to the presence in Afghanistan and opposed to any increase in it. But after the speech, uh, those numbers declined, and it's now, you know, roughly the supports in the 45 to 47 percent level. Um, and I have been struck by uh, the lack of uh, real engagement by many people. If I ask them, what do you think about Afghanistan? They'll say, oh, man, it's crazy. What's he putting more troops there for? But when you ask people to take action, to even send a message to their member of Congress saying, I want our troops out of Afghanistan, and I, I thoroughly oppose an increase in our troops. Uh, I find people start to yawn. Uh, they change the subject. They want to talk about Tiger Woods and make a joke. In part, I think, because a lot of people uh, have gone through this stupid cycle of expectation around the election, in part because people tire and burn out. People burned out three years ago and two years ago and took breaks and came back. I mean, it happens when people who are really are active. Um, but people have signed petitions and people have done things and then they haven't immediately worked. And so they don't want to try it again or try it on a bigger scale. Uh, but in some cases, those same people will do something that seems more difficult and more radical because it hasn't been done before. And it excites them as having potential. And so there are young people and old people who will get involved and, and go to jail to try to persuade uh, and pressure our elected so-called representatives to do the right thing, uh, who won't sign another petition. Uh, and, and, I, and I give them credit for that. You know, it's uh, it, people... People were engaged and pushed to oppose these wars for years by groups whose sole motivation was bashing Republican elected officials. I mean, this is one of the most disgusting things of the past several years, is all of these anti-war rallies that were purely campaigns against Republican elected officials. And the minute that the war became a Democratic war associated with the president, as no war should be, but a Democratic war, even if you associated it with Congress, uh, then... You know, last November, the funding just disappeared for the peace movement. Uh, groups disbanded entirely and others demobilized three quarters of the way. And so so it's not, you know, individuals who've who've dropped out are not don't don't get all of the blame on their own shoulders. Um, they aren't being encouraged in the same ways um, because of 
uh, of the corruption or the misguided thinking or some combination. Um, uh, what the U.S. Army is telling us now is that they're going to start taking troops out of Iraq in May and be done by August. It'll only take them three months, which if you'll... Rec- Bullshit. <laughs> that, that's not possible. Well, they used to tell us it'll take us over a year. Uh-huh. And I would t- ask them, why, for God's sake, will it? Why can't you just bring them all home immediately? Isn't, wouldn't three months be enough? I don't... I, I, I don't claim the expertise to swear that's right, but they now agree with me. They now say, you know, we can be out of there, out of their meaning down to 50,000 troops, a normal imperial occupation, uh, in three months. Now, that's one way they are using to put it off, put it off, but they are also talking about not doing that if the conditions on the ground are not right, right, which is an influence on the coming election this month in Iraq on the parties that 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 actually want the occupation to go on uh, to screw with the election and, and make the occupation more likely to continue, which the army will be more than happy to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, for example, the military experts I've talked to say that uh, you can get out two brigades a month. And to imagine, I, I think there's 16 brigades there now, and if we just roughly cut that in half, eight brigades in three months? I don't think so. Well, a lot of it is equipment, right? And now they're talking about just leaving everything there. Um, which, Including half of our National Guard equipment from California. <laughs> no doubt. No yeah. doubt. Because, you know, if you leave it there, you can build new stuff uh, and, and somebody can make a buck off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's like when the, something would break on a, on a truck over there for Halliburton. They just drive it off the road and burn it because, you know, we're buying. Get a new one. Uh, so whether they leave all the equipment there or not is a big question in terms of, of the timing. But that was Obama's campaign promise explicitly. I mean, at rallies, it was, I will end the war, I will end the war, I will bring the troops home, first thing I'll do. But in the details with the reporters, it was one to two brigades a month for the first 16 months, and we'll be down to a normal occupation. Uh, And, you know, which is absolutely insane and uh, intolerable, but we'll be down to what we consider a normal occupation. And and, uh, that hasn't begun. You know, mm-hmm. here we are 12 months and they haven't started the 16 month process. And they're saying now they won't start it till May. And they're saying we'll be done by August. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think if they if they actually did that, uh, we should never, ever let them forget it uh, in terms of their demands for endless time to get out of the next country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it's uh, it's a major question of whether they're going to do it at all and whether the Iraqi people are going to get to vote ever on the referendum they were promised by last July and then promised this month uh, on ending the occupation because they've all been told, well, why bother holding a vote when it would, you know, it, it would still require 12 months after you vote because the treaty has built into it this 12-month lag. And so you'd only be moving up the end of the war by a handful of months. Why bother? If if I may just correct you, there is no treaty. That's a bilateral agreement that was ratified by the parliament in Iraq, but never submitted to the United States Senate for any kind of review or affirmation. Well, I call it a treaty because it looks like a treaty. It smells like a treaty. It walks like a treaty. It's a status of forces agreement, unlike any previous status of forces agreement, most of which themselves I consider treaties. And when they refused to run it past the Senate, there was a senator by the name of uh, Barack something, Obama, I think it was, Mm -hmm. who was 
quite upset about this. And Senator Biden put in a bill that said we won't fund the occupation unless the Senate ratifies the treaty. And uh, I think it might have been Congresswoman Wolsey and some others in the House who, who, who put in the same kind of legislation. And now Obama and Biden accept this unconstitutional treaty as their legal cover for an illegal occupation. No mm-hmm. questions asked. Uh, and the Senate goes happily along with it, despite the fact that it can have no say any longer over whether they do the same thing in another country or replace this treaty with a new one that extends it additional months or years. Yeah. Well, and for those Iraqi elections, we'll have Karzai send monitors over. <laughs> yeah, that'll help. That'll make sure. help. Now, uh, now, David, I printed this piece out uh, that you wrote in November of this year. Uh, it was published mid-November. Authoritative, uh, authoritative rejection of the Afghanistan war. And, and you showed 17 different ways that uh, Americans and others uh, reject the U.S. presence there, the premise for it, and also just the practical realities of what we say we're there for. And uh, I just want to know how you feel that it, it really appeared that as Obama went through this lengthy and public review process, that there was a chance that we could see at, at least a rejection of the McChrystal uh, request for more troops. Uh, I had no illusions that Obama would at that point initiate any kind of a drawdown or uh, even a, a scheduled uh, withdrawal timeline. But uh, h- how do you feel about the way public opinion shifted after Obama's speech, in which, uh, frankly, I felt he insulted our intelligence, he embraced the framing and language and fear-mongering of Bush, uh, he says that the surge in Iraq worked as a premise for uh, a, a situation that uh, bears no comparison. In fact, things are much worse in Afghanistan in terms of trying to localize the the war and give us a, an exit strategy. Right. So uh, how do you feel and, and where are you in terms of trying to galvanize public opinion against the Afghanistan so-called surge. And and he gave a second speech uh, in which he glorified the wonders of war, accepting a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. That was an unprecedented move. And if Indeed. a Republican had done that, can you imagine the shame among the liberal pundits in this country? And instead, silence. And, and I did not think that there was a chance that Obama on his own or because of our efforts uh, would not go with what the military commanders were publicly, if not treasonously, lobbying him to do. Um, but I did think that there would be a chance if we forced Congress to say, you can't have the money, which they could have preemptively said, you won't have the money for this. Instead, the leaders of the two parties went to the White House and met with the president and came out and Senator Reid put his arm around Nancy Pelosi and said, we just told the president, do what you want to do. If it costs money, we've got you covered. Uh, that's unconstitutional. Um, that was disastrous. And then what did the American public do? Did we go after Congress and say, turn that around now, tell him he cannot have the money? No, we lobbied the president. We phoned the White House. We held rallies at the White House. We pretended as if there was some reason why the president would listen to us uh, to the point of not bothering to lobby our representatives in the House over whom we have dramatically more, albeit not nearly enough, influence. Uh, So at some point, we have to stop. I mean, here we are still talking about the president. At some point, we have to focus on the branch where the war powers are supposed to be, where we have some chance uh, of having a say and demanding that they not fork over the money. 
that that I think is the only thing that 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 there is a chance of. I I, I don't think I don't think a president uh, is going to end a war. Um, not this president, and not with the military publicly uh, demanding that he go forward. And and I think the peace prize uh, only made things worse. Yeah. So, David, the subtitle of your book is is what's so important here? Undoing the imperial presidency. And I'd like to know what your thoughts are in practical terms about what we can do to roll back the incursions on our constitutional and privacy rights, uh, make sure that the United States is fully compliant with our own laws and with international treaties. And as an example, while I applaud the president's effort to close Guantanamo and deplore those, including Democrats, who have uh, pandered to American fears in trying to keep it open, uh, we have a place with the same rules called Bagram, where you can go and be tortured and be held indefinitely without charge and without the appropriate protections of the Geneva Conventions. And, uh, you know, this is something that I feel very concerned about, and I share your view that it's not about this president. It's about the, uh, the role of the executive, the need for balance of powers and separation of powers, and it appears that we have a Congress that uh, not only doesn't exercise those roles, but is intentionally keeping itself in the dark so that they can tell us at election time, oh, I didn't know about the secret war with all the drones in Pakistan. They didn't tell me. Right, right. Well, we, we, have, to, we have to pass a number of laws, if not amendments to the Constitution, to move where the powers are. Um, we have to get laws that exist enforced. Uh, we have to bring presidents and everyone who works with them under the rule of law. Uh, and to the extent that we can do that through civil and local and state and foreign and international cases uh, that we can't get brought through the Justice Department, uh, we must. Um, and to the extent that we can build movements for reform and change at the local and state level, we must. But uh, ideally, for the future of our republic, we're going to win these changes through Congress. Uh, and if Congress is going to have any say, it's going to bring back the powers of subpoena and impeachment uh, that have been tossed aside. Uh, we, we had the Democrats come into power preemptively announcing they wouldn't impeach anyone, going through a pretense of subpoenaing people but not enforcing the subpoenas. Now, not even going through that pretense, none of these people who have yet to appear, including the, the Vice President Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and the rest of them, uh, have not been re-subpoenaed. Uh, they simply have been let off. Uh, and Congress is going to have to step up, and there's going to have to be a committee that actually enforces a subpoena with the Capitol Police Force uh, and that actually proposes impeaching someone. And I, I keep coming to back to the example of how we drove Alberto Gonzalez out of town, because it was a nice victory, short-lived. They replaced him with somebody just as bad, but it was a useful technique to remember that we had a Congress member put in a bill saying the Judiciary Committee shall consider whether or not to impeach him uh, and got co-sponsors and co-sponsors and co-sponsors and he quit and left. You didn't actually have to impeach him. You just had to threaten it. Uh, and if they were to do that now, it would change everything in Washington. They could do it with a former Bushy like Jay Bybee, who sits on an appeals court here in California for right. life. Yeah. They could do it with Tim Geithner. They could do it with uh, with anyone uh, deserving of impeachment, uh, and there's a long list. Well, they could start by not reconfirming Bernanke, 
And I applaud uh, Senator Sanders and others who have moved to block that renomination, but it probably will not hold. And and you raised a couple of important points there. I think that uh, Pelosi's uh, uh, campaign pledge, because Karl Rove basically laid down a, a gauntlet and she said, oh, no, we won't impeach. And then, of course, after she won the majority, she had many opportunities to wriggle out of that, if only to say, I'm going to let Congressman Conyers do his job as chair of the Judiciary Committee. And if he brings me a compelling case, uh, I will, you know, accede to the will of the people. Uh, And and I see that as one of the uh, contributing factors here that enabled Obama to take this bizarre position that we're looking forward and not backward. And that accountability is optional. And in a recent podcast, I featured uh, Charlotte Dennett and her new book, The People v. Bush. She embraces the concepts of Vincent Bugliosi in prosecuting Bush for murder. And uh, I support accountability in every way because I think that it's the only way to get us back on track and to send a clear message to the rest of the world that what we saw from 2001 to 2009 was an aberration and that we recognize it, we apologize for it, and we seek to make amends for it. Yet uh, there's no appetite uh, in Washington for this kind of accountability. And I find that at, at the, the core of many of the problems we face today. Well, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, Charlotte Dennett is is doing a wonderful job. Vince Bugliosi is, you know, e- even a failed attempt, uh, even a partway attempt at accountability, even trying to impeach Gonzalez and he quits and leaves, uh, sends a message to the world and to future office holders. And uh, Vince Bugliosi's strategy may ultimately, at best, run up against the Supreme Court, um, but it will accomplish a great deal just by getting to that point. Um, but ideally, we're going to force representation by our representatives in Congress uh, and win accountability that way and see Congress impose justice on the Justice Department. Um, that is, that's going to be the ideal solution that we have to keep pushing for. I don't care how many years it takes. And uh, this just occurred to me, but in many respects, I feel that Obama is leading an obstruction of justice conspiracy by failing to permit investigations that could lead to prosecutions, because the evidence is quite clear. And even on a pragmatic political level, if only to shut Dick Cheney up uh, and stop him from sniping, uh, he has not managed to shoot the president in the face, but just about everywhere else, uh, it, it just boggles my mind that uh, we can say, well, we're taking a holiday on accountability for elected officials. That's like saying, this year, we're not going to prosecute bank robbers. Right. How many you know, How many times will you let Dick Cheney kick you in the face before you allow laws to be enforced that he's violated? I don't know. But there are obvious reasons why a president would be resistant to that. Uh, I mean, he's not just obstructing justice and engaging in misprison of felony, but he's continuing the same crimes. He's continuing the warrantless spying programs, uh, the, the permittance of, of torture, the, the rendition uh, program openly avowed as it was with Bill Clinton. It's not as if this was a brand new aberration, this Bush-Cheney disaster, uh, the illegal wars and, and occupations. Um, and and so there's... And, and the new illegal war in Pakistan. I, I mean, the use of drones, and, and I give that student credit who stood up to Hillary Clinton when she was visiting Pakistan in November 
and said, you know, these are assassinations from the sky without investigation, without indictment. And this is terrorism, pure and simple. And Hillary's comments were so lame. Well, I think there's a war on. And basically, she just flatly said, I'm not going to talk about that. And yet we all know what's going on. We know that the uh, use of these drones has been widely expanded by Obama. It's it's the most terrorizing thing you can imagine to have the noise of these things overhead. And at any time, they'll destroy your home. And they're routinely destroying men, women and children. Uh, And there was a a recent incident reported, not uh, confirmed by all parties, but confirmed by our puppet president and by the United Nations special representative of of U.S. led forces dragging eight students out of bed and assassinating them. Uh, And and that sort of got people's attention. And and I tried to tell people, you know, that is not worse than killing those same people with an unmanned aircraft from the sky. Uh, And we think it's not worse because it's at a distance, uh, even though we ourselves aren't seeing either of these crimes. Uh, And we think it is is sort of protecting of all the right people that we care about, the English-speaking, white, American, Christian people. Uh, And then you see... Uh, a CIA operative uh, blow up seven others, two of them with Blackwater. Uh, and you and you realize quite immediately that there is going to be blowback, small and large, uh, from these crimes. Nobody's going to be protected. And the subtext of the attack in Coast that left the CIA and Blackwater operatives dead was that this was the result of a double, or maybe we call him a triple agent, who uh, was a clear al-Qaeda supporter, who we thought we had flipped because he spent a little time in a Jordanian prison. And I don't know the particulars of that. I can only suspect that he was given some enhanced interrogation techniques. And then he pretended to flip so that he could uh, win the trust of the U.S. and uh, the Jordanian handlers. And uh, then it all blew up in our faces. And it just shows the preposterous nature of uh, that, that we can win this by turning people against al-Qaeda, uh, that we are you know, somehow right in everything we do, even when it's clearly uh, immoral or, or just plain wrong. And so we have these layers of blowback that come from our embrace of these illegal and immoral policies. And it seems like under Obama, this will continue to spiral. And it's interesting that all of these cases out of Guantanamo, where we have tortured people in their interrogations and then ultimately let them go because they were innocent of of any crime, uh, and then they engage in in acts of violence against the United States, and and the New York Times talks about it and exaggerates it uh, as returning to terrorism, all these terrorist agents returning to terrorism, when, of course, they had been let go because there was no evidence that they had engaged in any uh, terrorism, but they were enraged by their treatment. So there's, there's, not a, there's not a record of torturing people, winning them, much less their friends and relatives and world opinion, over to your side. In fact, there's, there's quite a, a documented uh, series of cases where it has exactly the opposite predictable uh, effect. Uh, and so who knows what these people were thinking uh, who got themselves blown up. David Swanson, it's a real pleasure to see you. Thank you for the work that you do. I know you're not going to stop. I want people to pick up your book, Daybreak, Undoing the Imperial Presidency and Forming a More Perfect Union. And uh, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? Uh, 
defundwar.org is a place to go. It's part of afterdowningstreet.org. And be inspired by the fact that that we are figuring out exactly what to do. Uh, I think Churchill said Americans will do the right thing after they've tried everything else. We have just about tried everything else now. We know exactly what's needed, uh, and we're going to do it. David, thank you very much. Thank you. continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Like so many have, just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer. Steve Miller there with my uh, late friend Norton Buffalo helping out. That's the big old jet airliner. And we're going to talk about what it's like to (laughs) submit to air travel these days. Kate Hanai is the leading advocate for flyers rights in this country. The website flyersrights.org has been spiffed up since the last time I visited it. And, Kate, there's so much to talk about. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me again, Peter. And let me start with one of your signal accomplishments, because you and your family uh, went on this uh, extraordinary, grueling trip where you were trapped on an airliner for, as I recall, it was over eight hours. And you have been fighting for our rights in Congress. And Congress really didn't come through for you, but the new Department of Transportation Secretary, uh, Ray LaHood, a former Republican congressman from Illinois, has been listening, and maybe he flies commercial. I I can only hope that uh, a lower-ranking cabinet official like that occasionally flies on a commercial commercial airliner. But tell our listeners about the big victory and the new three-hour limit on tarmac imprisonment. Well, you know, my family was stuck. We had four hours of flight before being put down for nine hours and 17 minutes on the tarmac, and we remember every one of those minutes. Um, And uh, there was huge public outcry about these events, which from the time our event happened, which included 138 planes on December 29, 2006, uh, six weeks later to the day was JetBlue. And then as we began tracking these events and documenting them with our hotline uh, at 1-877-359-3776, toll-free, and people can call us and they can report these incidents, and we also help them with issues, mm-hmm. we began to notice a pattern whereby these events were happening actually every day, upwards of 10 times a day, not always for nine hours, but over three hours on the ground at an airport without access to food, water, toilets, temperature control, or the ability to get off a plane. Yeah. And people were frustrated and upset, and they wanted us to do something about it. So we went to Congress, and we said, please give us this law. We got nine bills introduced before Congress. Um, one, right now we have a four, and two of them are very close to passage. The House has passed. The Senate may pass uh, early this year. And um, at the same time, simultaneously, we had a rulemaking. And the rulemaking was through the Department of Transportation, and it was very similar to what Congress was working on, although most people didn't know about it. 
I was on a task force for 11 months uh, in order to help with the rulemaking under the Bush administration, and um, it did not get finalized. And, and thank you to the Bush administration for leaving it broad, because that allowed the new administration to make the changes necessary to the rule uh, that we wanted. And on December 21st, we got a rulemaking which has the force of law that will start April 29th of this year, which says every airline must give you the opportunity to get off of a plane at three hours. Mm -hmm. No extensions, which is better than what we have in Congress, to be honest. Um, It also mandates that after two hours that you will have access to a, a potable water, a snack. They will have to come service the toilets and clean them out. Um, clean the trash receptacles, and must maintain temperature control. Now, many people don't like the idea that it's two hours, and our Senate bill would have you be able to have access to potable water, food, and those things at any point on the tarmac. So that's another reason why we need to continue fighting to get the Senate's version passed. Mm -hmm. But right now we do have enforceable rights that will start April 29th, and it is a huge victory. It was a surprise victory. And this this comes down to a lot of calculations about cost, and it's all been one-sided, that it's the cost to the airlines that has been the the dominant factor here. The cost of our time, the inconvenience, and sometimes the real pain and suffering that has occurred, that's not been factored in. But you told me when we discussed this off the air that there are serious fines involved that could shift that calculation on the parts of the uh, airlines that, well, it's cheaper to do the right thing, to give them food and water and to release them from the, uh, the, the airplane if, in fact, we're not going to be able to fly within three hours. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the DOT, in a stunning move, uh, imposed up to $27,500 fines Per person, per event. I know. (laughs) Thank you very much. And um, can I say that on the air? Yes, you can. (laughs) This is a podcast. You can say whatever the hell you want. Oh, thank God. So, uh, you know, I think what I was stunned when my I heard it on television before I actually read the rule. I was being bombarded with media calls asking how our reaction. And I had to double check to make sure that I heard correctly. Uh, although I'd been sent a copy of the rule, it's 80 pages. And being in California, I didn't have a chance to read it before responding to it. So um, I think most people would be surprised to know how heavy-handed the DOT has been. But what people need to understand about that is two things. The DOT has the ability to impose up to that amount. But historically, they, whatever amount they impose, they forgive 50 75%, and sometimes 100% of it, if the airline does some fairly minimal things in some kind of effort to make it look like they've done something uh, to prevent these events in the future. So it's very unlikely that an airline would ever pay that amount. Mm-hmm. But the other question I had of the DOT is, could any of these fines go to the passengers? Apparently, yes. But that's going to take passengers really screaming in these events when when they happen and i'm very sure there will be some that'll happen after april twenty ninth but they're going to have to start screaming and and filing complaints with the dot that they feel they should get some of those fines as passengers do in europe and india and china 
and many other countries where they have already had regulations imposed that protect passengers. And they have to be in cash because uh, the cruel thing that they do now is if you scream loud enough, they'll say, well, here, you didn't, li- you didn't like our service today, so we're going to compensate you with a free ride on the airline that sucks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they did with us. And we never used our our vouchers and out of the principle of the thing. It was hideous, the idea that for all our suffering that we were going to have to fly their airline in order to receive our compensation. And, and, and also there's an ugly underbelly to that, which is that it's a lot cheaper for an airline to give you a voucher than it is for them to actually give you the cash because – Flights aren't worth as much as they actually charge in sure. terms of what it costs the airline. So, well, and they, they make it difficult enough that uh, they know that the bulk of those vouchers will never actually be, be uh, used or cashed in. That's correct. That's correct. So it's a game they play, and, and that's why it's, it is still so very important. I think one thing that people really need to get is that, you know, there, there are a lot of, of rules and laws that get passed but they fade away, disappear, or are overturned later when a group like ours doesn't have the funds or the means to move forward and support it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very important that people get involved with us, volunteer on our hotline, volunteer to come to D.C. or to lobby locally where they are, pick up the phone, call their congressmen and senators, tell them what they think, and that they feel it's very important that Congress passes a law also. And the primary reason for that is the airlines have already threatened to try to overturn the rule. Mm-hmm. They're saying they're going to sue. They're saying um, that it's impossible for them to implement the schedule changes that they'll need to make in order to honor this rule. So the, the, the whining and crying that we've heard from the airline industry is not over. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to get louder before April 29th. And people need to be aware that there could even be some semi-retaliation. Yeah. Now, Kate, what's your advice here? Because you just talked about how passengers who are wronged, who are trapped in a plane for longer than three hours, need to scream about it. But we're in an oppressive, repressive, militarized zone now when we're at an airport or in the custody of an airline. And so it's, it's very delicate because the range of human emotions that we used to be allowed to show now have to be constricted. If I lose my temper... Uh, because of the way they've treated me, well, they can declare that I'm uh, some sort of a threat or, uh, you know, uh, uh, they can call in the air marshals, they can have me detained, and and that's not an idle threat. Uh, We do have cases where recently people have gotten drunk and uh, locked themselves in the bathroom, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legitimate complaints from people who do get irate because of the way they've been treated. Yet we've got to pop some Valium and, you know, (laughs) call a friend on a cell phone and say, talk me down because I'm about to strangle somebody. (laughs) Talk me down. That's great. You know, and I agree with you. I I should have clarified when I said we need people to to get active and and scream. Uh, I meant um, appropriately, of course, so that they don't violate the law in any way or appear like a threat to a flight attendant or airport personnel. That is imperative. But There are ways of managing this, um, which we have very effectively done as a group uh, for the last three years. It depends on what happens to them, um, of course. But if somebody is stuck in a plane, we call the media. We get the media to the airport, and that applies enough pressure that that plane pulls back into a gate and lets them off. Uh, You know, every time. We've never failed. 
to get folks off when they've called us our hotline from a plane. Um, we also have a stranded passenger emergency kit, which is uh, just a little trifold brochure, which they can print out and carry with them in their, their wallet or their purse, which tells them what their rights are. And we haven't added our new rule to that. We're in the process of doing that, but it tells them what their rights are in terms of baggage and bumping and many of the things that can happen um, during air travel. And there's many ways of people appropriately standing their ground with customer service, uh, not so much TSA, but with customer service and airline and airport personnel uh, in saying, look, I'm a human being. I pose no threat to you. I need to get my needs met, and here's what they are. Mm -hmm. um, people need to know that they can advocate for themselves, and if it becomes so onerous that we can't, then that's something flyers' rights must fight for also. It, it, it has, in many ways. We encouraged people for the first two and a half years to take videos on planes. Mm -hmm. You may notice that's happening less and less even though the strandings are still happening. And the reason for that is that the flight attendants are telling the passengers that it is, quote-unquote, illegal to take videotapes during stranding events, and they're telling them to delete their video footage when they do take it, which is a complete violation of our rights. Yeah. Um, there's no law that says you can't videotape inside an aircraft, but then what the flight attendants will say is, um, well, now you're violating my uh, crew member's instructions. And so I'm going to have you removed from the aircraft. So one does need to be careful how they do these things. I don't like it. No one likes it. It's got to change. Um, but you also do need to be able to advocate for yourself and speak up. So, Kate, uh, I imagine people call and cry on your shoulder quite a bit. Uh, can I use your shoulder for just a second here? Yes, please. Because uh, my long-suffering uh, love partner, Kathy Shatter, who we call Kate, uh, was uh, on a flight last Saturday. She was going from San Francisco to Palm Springs. Weather was clear in both uh, the departure and arrival des uh, locations. And uh, she was on one of these puddle jumpers, uh, SkyWest, America West, or United West. I don't know what it was. Anyway, um, they were delayed for three hours in the terminal. And the reason given was a weather delay in Portland. <laughs> and I checked online. Portland was clear. Right. And the issue was that their crew was coming in from Portland and somebody was late, okay? So they did not, uh, they, they weren't honest with the passengers. They basically just kept delaying the departure time. And as uh, tempers flared, they offered vouchers. <laughs> and uh, mm. they said, oh, you can come back tomorrow if you want. And finally, the, uh, they left the gate uh, about three hours late. And then they sat on the runway for over 30 minutes with no heat on. Mm. And when Kathy complained, uh, she was told basically to sit down and shut up. <sighs> and I I'm just curious what your thoughts are, because one of the big problems we have is that they play games with us. They manipulate us. They don't tell us the truth. Yes. And if she had known uh, at departure time that it was going to be three hours, she would have come home and, uh, you know, attempted to fly the next day. And instead, they string you along with partial information or with lies. And, uh, you know, the end result is that nobody's happy. So what rights do we have to honest information about the status of a flight and the real reason that it's been delayed? Well, the first error on the part of the airline was in not informing her by email or by phone before she ever got to the airport, because that tail number of the flight coming in that would be her 
plane and the crew likely that was going to take her to, to her destination to Kate's destination would have been known well in advance that there was a delay. So that's the first problem. And uh, I think an, an appropriate complaint uh, to the Department of Transportation would get her some compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does need to be addressed uh, in another way, and I'll explain that in a minute. And then secondly, uh, why it is that they would depart from the gate if they couldn't take off immediately is another mystery. Uh, I know I know generally what it is, but but probably because they had overscheduled flights for that time slot. But that also is a predictable outcome, and that should have been disclosed to passengers before they got in the plane. Um, in other words, they should have said, "Look, you know, we're out of line. Uh, we're not in. We're not taking off at our normal time, so we're going to have to sit for 30 minutes." Uh, so if you need anything, get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that opportunity is never afforded passengers. Uh, so that's something else that we are working on with the Department of Transportation for their next rulemaking, which they're doing uh, this year. Um, I think that um, there's some compensation involved in a contract when an airline doesn't notify you mm-hmm. uh, in advance. And, that, and it's a huge problem. It's a bait and switch on their part. They don't really want you to know because they know once you get to the airport, you've checked your bags, you're at the gate, and you're waiting for the – and you're not notified in advance. You can't really advocate for yourself the way you could have if you were in your car or at home yeah. uh, when you knew about the delay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real – slimy technique on the part of the airlines. And let me tell you about the weather coding. What I discovered and what's going in my book about this is that the management all the way down to the gate agents get bonuses for miscoding flights. Hmm. So in other words, the more flights that they say are weather delays, the more money they get in their paychecks because they then don't have to compensate you for food, taxi, and hotel vouchers, or refund your money. Mm-hmm. And that, and it's a huge racket. It's a huge scam. It needs to be uncovered. And people, uh, what we encourage people to do is exactly what you just did, recount what happened, and get names of airline employees who are saying these things. If it's a gate agent or if it's a pilot or a flight attendant, get their name and go immediately to customer service and say, this was not a weather delay. This was a lack of crew availability. That is an airline-related problem mm-hmm. that's within their control. And I deserve, if you're, if you're delayed over four hours, the same as bumping compensation, which is $400. If it's between one and four hours, it's $400. If it's over four hours, it's $800. Cold, mm-hmm. hard cash. Not vouchers, not miles, cash. So that's what people's rights are or aren't <laughs> related to these delays. It's very difficult for a lot of people to, to I, don't, I don't quite understand it, and I don't think it's just fear of recrimination on the part of TSA or the airlines. Um, I think it has more to do with our society not so much speaking up when these things happen and, and being willing to advocate for themselves. Sometimes people become resigned and just walk away with whatever they can get instead of saying, no, I really know my rights. Well, but I don't want to get on the no-fly list. Well, you won't. <laughs> you won't. I mean, by, by telling an airline I know what my rights are, and I've contacted Flyers Rights and the Department of Transportation, and here's what I know uh, should be coming to me contractually. Mm-hmm. 
um, that is not going to get anyone arrested. Because yeah. I'm suggesting you're talking to a c- customer service agent at this point, not TSA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, TSA has nothing to do with airline practices it, for all intents and purposes. They are simply a different entity that screens you on the way into the airport. And you definitely don't want to make any smooth or cunning moves on your way through a TSA line. Well, especially with the advent of full-body scanning. And that's where I want to go next. Kate Hanai with us from FlyersRights.org. Visit the website and get empowered. And uh, you may have heard this one before, Kate, but it's uh, more more relevant than ever. I used to fly with my clothes on Till the airline clothing ban We went from scanning to banning One airline had tanning Well, laptops, and I'm feeling shy. Not in the last hour. Instead of metal detection, no clothing directions from the nude flight attendant, a guy. Damn. Fly safe, fly naked, no weapons to find. You're safer with nothing on. Naked Got to give credit where credit is due. Loose Bruce Kerr composed that ditty at least five years ago. And he's got a website now, loosebrucekerr.com, if you want to <laughs> check that out. And he does have to update the laptop line. I don't know if that one is still in effect, that you have to have your lap clear and your hands folded in the prayer position for the last hour of the flight. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> you is. know, uh, we, I got 1,200 emails from our members overnight after the Christmas Day terrorist event complaining about the new limitations and restrictions and body scanner implementation. Um, I had, you know, elderly men who wear uh, adult diapers Mm -hmm. saying, does this mean that TSA is going to see me in an adult diaper and be able to identify I'm wearing an adult diaper? And then uh, am I going to be screened out again for for tertiary screening where they're going to have to search my diaper because it has gel in it? Um, and people with small children saying, I don't want my children, uh, you know, views of their naked bodies available for TSA, people concerned with radiation, um, people concerned basically with their civil liberties being violated, and a a 100% lack of faith on the part of TSA to actually catch the criminals. I think that's the biggest concern that people have, is that none of these, these things are onerous on the passengers, and they won't catch the bombers. Well, this is one of my issues, and that is uh, when I was young, my dad took me to see the Maginot Line. And the Maginot Line was constructed by France after World War I, and it was based on the conditions of World War I. And (laughs) so they had these gun embankments and placements where the turrets didn't go 360 degrees. And so the Nazis, uh, 10 years after the Maginot Line was created, simply flew over it and bombed it from the rear. And it's a vivid example of what we're doing now. We are ratcheting up and hardening our airports in response to the last attack, but it doesn't necessarily protect us from other creative, nefarious methods that enemies might try to use against us. Right. And I'm not saying that we should just give up and say, you know, it's God's will, we won't try to protect people, but we have gone to such lengths 
And it's not only inconvenient and it's not only, in many cases, unconstitutional. It's frankly crazy <laughs> to, to think that we can stop every suicide bomber attempt, uh, you know, by using technology or other, uh, uh, you know, deeply invasive techniques. Yeah, I, you just nailed it. I mean, we really have a problem, Houston, when photographing people naked uh, in order to rule out a negative and, rule, and, and include everyone in that screening process is the only way that we think we can combat these terrorists. It's, it's ridiculous. And also, statistically, flying is still very safe. And your risk of having a terrorist event on an airplane is extremely rare, uh, probably almost as rare as a crash, if not more rare than an airline crash. Why are we putting so much on the passengers? Honestly, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a, a very large, silent group of people that are just not going to fly. And what's going to happen is we're, our airlines are not going to be robust. We're not going to see any return to the types of service that we used to have because they won't be able to afford it. There's a huge impact on people for these onerous measures being placed on us and not enough of our eggs being put in the intelligence basket here. <laughs> you know, with all this information coming in, what the heck? Why is it that they can't seem to act on it? And why is it that these government agencies don't talk to each other? And what's really interesting is um, I have a brother-in-law who applied for a job, not with TSA, but with the Customs uh, Division, uh, of Homeland Security, and he got washed out of a training program because he failed to find some drugs in a guy's crotch. So oh, no. I, I think it's very interesting that Customs uh, appears because they're looking for drugs, and that's a common uh, site for parking drugs, uh, that, that they appear to be more attuned to that than TSA has been. And, of course, we have to acknowledge that the uh, actual inspectors of the uh, uh, Abdul Muttalib uh, were in Nigeria and in Amsterdam. So we, we can't blame that on the protocols and practices here in the United States. But to ratchet those up and to apply them to every person, every flight, when there's never been an instance of someone boarding an airliner domestically and attempting to blow it up, all right, uh, after 9-11, uh, you know, we, again, uh, I think would be better off to use a uh, random selection of techniques to keep people off guard rather than set up this very predictable, draconian, across-the-board uh, security strategy. Yes, you, you got it. And, and I think that people are very resistant right now to these, the implementation of these new measures, as they should be. And I think that we need to implement smart solutions at the highest level that don't become onerous and, and over-cumbersome for airline passengers. A lot of people have, are, have stopped flying since 911 um, due to the new implementation of rules. And then there are a few of us that must fly that have had to sort of suck it up and accept it. Um, but that's really not the way that we should be looking at our air system or air travel I think we should be looking at it as a top-down strategy. The, all of the failures since not, from 911 to now have been from the top down. Intelligence hasn't communicated with each other. The 911 Commission made clear that uh, our intelligence community needed to be able to act and act quickly and communicate with each other, and none of their implementations have, have actually happened. And these body scanners, by the way, 
will not find anything underneath a penis. <laughs> and I, if I might be so bold, um, it's important that people understand this is security theater. It's not real security. It's not going to make you be safer in, in the sense that all a terrorist has to do is push the explosives back six inches from where Mutalabs were, and there's a guarantee that they won't be found. Even in the manner that he had them sewn in his underwear, the body scanner website, RapidScan's website, makes clear that these scanners would not have detected it. So, and, and you know, if, aside from the privacy issues, any mm-hmm. cavity, crevice, body fold, under a breast, in a bra, sewn in underwear, none of that's going to be detected mm-hmm. in the amounts that he had on him um, because it was spread out. And, again, look at somebody wearing an adult diaper. Is every single elderly person or anyone wearing an adult diaper going to be um, hand-searched or frisked or have to take them off so that you can inspect them and make sure that what's in them is not explosives? Well, there's a one-word answer to that. Depends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, and, You're so and, right. and, you know, there is this temptation, and I indulge in it myself, to make fun of this. You know, is that a load in your pants or you're trying to blow me up? <laughs> but it, it, does, it does expose the lunacy here. And what you just told us is that well-endowed individuals, male or female, uh, you know, could be able to uh, get around this new technology and maybe their theory is, well, you know, we're just going to spend millions of dollars so that a would-be terrorist is going to sweat a lot when they come through, and that's how we're going to identify them. But uh, well, we do need to notice. That's the other thing. I mean, I don't know about the well-endowed part because on the Rapiscan website it says anything beneath one tenth of an inch of skin will not be detected. Hmm. So that's not very deep. Uh-huh. Uh and uh but what what I think is is simply amazing is that um you've got Michael Chertoff out there who's a lobbyist for Rapiscan telling people that these this equipment will work when it won't in these situations it will they will identify guns and plastic um that are anomalies but then there's going to have to be further detection mm-hmm. and we already have metal detectors dogs would be less invasive and would be able to smell the explosives in a way that no other high-tech uh, unit can yeah. at this point. They're trying to, to develop it, but the, these RapiScan units literally are what we call a developing technology, not really ready for market. Hey, it's like missile defense. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're only an oxymoron? <laughs> we're $120 billion into that, and we all know it doesn't work, but we still threaten to deploy it. Right. <laughs> well, Kate, I really thank you for your, your extensive ad- advocacy for the flying public. Flyersrights.org, great website, a lot of good information. The Flyers hotline is there when you need it. And, Kate, if you have uh, three agenda items for the coming year, in addition to the three-hour tarmac rule, uh, what is uh, at the top of your radar? At the very top of our radar is getting international flights included in our rule, Mm. because they're not included. So only domestic flights are included. Secondly, uh, baggage, baggage, baggage. For those of you who don't know what happens to lost bags, and this is really sinister, 10,000 bags a day are lost. Uh, the airlines sell them to, to a, a website called unclaimedbaggage.com for $10 a piece. That's $100,000 a day they're making on lost bags. 
A million bags a year uh, total are lost. It's a huge money-making concern. And when passengers make claims to get money back from lost bags, they're only paid about 6% of all the claims they submit. So baggage is second. And then uh, our third issue is going to be unaccompanied minors being cared for and not molested during travel. Mm. Mm-hmm. Those are important issues. Yeah, and just one quick note on the baggage side. Uh, it's a very important issue, and it's just mind-boggling to me that the airlines would charge us to lose our luggage. <laughs> they are charging us, and it's very hard to get that money back, even when your luggage is lost. I'm dealing with a lot of complaints right now trying to get their money back. Kate Hanai, FlyersRights.org, and their hotline, you can use it, is 877-FLYERS-6. That's 877-359-3776. And I hope your flights lead you to happy trails, even if they're chemtrails. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails.